This morning we are going to be looking at various passages from the book of Exodus. And so what we're going to be talking about this morning are the plagues of Egypt. You think Egypt, you think Ten Commandments maybe, you think plagues and Charlton Heston and Yul Brenner and all of that. Um, but instead of, because uh, what we could do is there's ten plagues. We could spend the next three, four months in this section of plagues. But rather than digging in deep, because I think sometimes we can miss the forest from the trees, what we're going to do this morning is an overview of what is going on with the plagues. Why those plagues? Why does God do that in Egypt? So we'll be looking at passages from Exodus 7 all the way through Exodus 11. Um, I won't be reading all of Exodus chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11, just excerpts, um, to give us a good overview. And then we're going to talk a little bit about what's going on there in a sermon entitled, God versus the Gods. So I've printed for you here a number of these passages. Um, it'll probably be easier to read from the bulletin, but if you have your phone or your Bible with you, um, you can flip along too. Exodus 7, um, passages through uh, chapter 11. This is God's word. Good, beautiful, and true. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the river. Confront him on the bank of the Nile and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Then say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to you. Let my people go, so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now you have not listened. This is what the Lord says, By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die, and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and canals, over the ponds and all the reservoirs, and they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even on their idols of wood and stone. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials, and he struck the water of the Nile, and all the water was changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died, and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh, and say to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. Let my people go, so that they may worship me. Or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people, so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You still set yourself against my people and will not let them go. Pharaoh said to Moses, get out of my sight. This is after the plagues. Get out of my sight. Make sure you do not appear before me again. The day you see my face you will die. And just as you say, Moses replied, I will never appear before you again. And then finally, chapter 11, the Lord had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now in this famous passage of scripture, walking through these plagues visited upon Egypt, these these actions of judgment against the false gods of Egypt. 
We pray as we look at the, this overview of this section that you would give us insight, not just into facts about something that happened 3,500 years ago in Egypt, but that you would open the eyes of our heart to see you, that you would train our hearts to love you, that you would teach us what it means to be your people and you be our God. Show us Jesus, Lord, his beauty and his majesty. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So a few years ago, I went on a pilgrimage. It seems appropriate to talk about pilgrimages as we're in the middle of Easter, which sometimes has led to pilgrimages, people going to the Holy Land, where uh, Ramadan started Saturday. So people from the Muslim religion, they're getting ready for the annual pilgrimage there. But I went on a pilgrimage a few years ago. And when I arrived there, there were tens of thousands of other people, um, pilgrims, uh, pilgrims traveling at the same time. It was an important day. Um, and I'd got there early. I had to find a good parking spot because I had to kind of walk a distance to get to the event. And as I got closer, excitement grew. Um, there were, like I said, tens of thousands of people also there for the exact same reason. And we all had very similar clothes on. So we had put on our, like, special colors. Um, we all kind of looked the same, our uniform, more or less. And before I went to the main spot, I stopped by to see all these relics that they had from the past. And so they had all these relics and kind of trophies from victories in the past. Almost like, you know, you see a stained glass window in an old church building. It's got stories from the Bible and you can look at them. Well, it's kind of like that. I see all these relics, um, all these examples right there in front of me of the power of this place. The names of past figures and their victories. And all over the place, all over the place is the symbol of this area. A ram. There's a ram everywhere. So I filed into basically what was the temple with all the other pilgrims. And when we got in there, we went through our very specific motions. We all had our seats. Music started and we stood and we sang along. Songs played and we sang and the action began and we rose and we fell with the motion of the room and we lifted our voices in praise and when it was all over we sang and we filed out of the place, returning home with the echo of everything in our hearts and in our ears with a memory seared into our mind. So what am I describing? Am I describing, I've never been to Jerusalem or, you know, I'm actually describing a UNC basketball game in Chapel Hill. Now, I'm being a bit facetious there um, because I didn't go to worship a basketball team or even Dean Smith or any of the figures. But what I'm pointing out is that there are aspects of our lives that I think sometimes we don't think about that are calling to our hearts, calling to win the affections of our hearts um, that are forming us in ways we don't. Uh, really think about. Now, sports is a bit of a small level thing. Well, not really. I'm, you know, it's the morning after the big Duke Carolina game. Um, but maybe it'll, it'll be a bit more obvious uh, if you think about a shopping mall. We've all been to a shopping mall, right? Well, you arrive to a shopping mall and what? The place is humongous. It's a modern day cathedral. And these are architectural wonders. They're not just functional. If they wanted functional, they could have just set up like small little booths for each of the stores. But you walk into a, a shopping mall, and it's always huge. The atrium's always big and beautiful. There might be light coming in from that natural light through the windows. And you walk in, and what do you see? You see ads and banners everywhere, and they're advertising something to you. They're advertising an offer for the good life. They're advertising to you a promise that if you walk in and you give your sacrifice, your money, 
you can get a blessing that will include you in this vision of the good life. And so that's what we do. We walk into the mall and it's this big cathedral. It's almost this worshipful experience. We go into the individual stores and think of those like individual sanctuaries or altars. And we go in and we give our sacrifice right to the priest or the cashier behind the thing. And we get our blessing to take home. And now we can wear the thing or uh, put the makeup on or whatever. And now we have our piece of the blessing of the good life. Now my, po- my point in pointing this out is not to try to make us feel guilty. I'm still going to go to the mall. I'm still going to cheer, cheer for UNC. That's not the point. But the point is this. We live in a world that forms us, that impacts us. We live in a world, for lack of a better description, that is thoroughly religious in every way. Because it's a world that's always tugging at the deepest desires of our hearts. And unless we're conscious of it, unless it kind of gets dragged out into the light, our hearts will grow more and more, I think, disordered. Because we will be placing our faith and placing our hope in things that are fundamentally not able to hold the weight of that. There are always voices calling out for our allegiance. There's always these voices calling out for our hearts to set up our lives around those things informing us in ways we don't realize. So what do we do? What do we do? If this is happening and we don't even realize it sometimes, how can we change it? How can we combat it? Well, the good news this morning is not that I have insight for you and now you can stop shopping at the mall or whatever. The good news is God is at work. God is at work. Even here in North Carolina in 2022, maybe in less obvious ways than the plagues in Egypt, But he's at work in the same way to free us. To free us. To expose the false gods we chase after. To invite our, uh, to bite us, invite us to place our heart affections on him. And to bring us into a fundamentally different way of life. One that won't swallow us up. One that won't leave us with hardened hearts. But one that will lead us to flourishing and thriving in him. So, I'm going to break it up into a couple of different sections to get our minds around what's going on in the scriptures and how we can apply this to our life. And the first one is this, the false gods. The false gods. So God in his absolute freedom in Exodus has joined to himself to the Israelite people. Notice that in the passages we read, he keeps calling himself the God of the Hebrews. He's making very clear to Pharaoh through Moses, I am the God of these enslaved people that you have used. That is who I am. He doesn't just say, I am the Lord. He says, I am the Lord, the God of the Hebrews. He's not ashamed of their weaknesses. He freely chooses to be called their God. And this free God and his power will have a free people. That's his commitment. That's what's going on here. They cannot remain in bondage. He will not allow it. And yet Pharaoh, again and again, says, hardens his own heart. And God hardens his heart. Pharaoh refuses. All he has, and we talked about this, I think, last week, all Pharaoh has is blame and mockery. All he has is demands and accusations. That's it. And so what we see in the plagues is that, in a sense, God declares war. God declares war. His people are bound and need to be freed. They're bound under chains. They can't lose themselves. And so God declares war. And notice how he does it. He doesn't give Moses and Aaron a lot of swords or chariots. He doesn't give them huge armies. God declares war on the gods of Egypt. 
That's why I've called this sermon God versus the gods. Here's what I mean. Let's take the first plague, for instance. We read the passage about the blood, the, the, the Nile turning to blood. The plagues are God attacking symbols associated with the false gods of Egypt. Now, some of the plagues seem more like direct, hit, direct hits. Some are a little more indirect. Take the first plague, for instance, when the water of the Nile turned to blood. In Egypt, there was a god specifically for the Nile River. The Nile was the very center of the Egyptian world. It de- their entire economy de- depended on the annual rising of the waters in the Nile that made the, the ground around the Nile fertile for, for planting and for harvest. And so the annual floods were literally called the arrival of Hopi, not H-O-P-P-Y. It's a false god, Hopi, the god of the Nile, H-A-P-I. So notice what God says to Moses here in verse 15. He tells Moses to go confront Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the river, confront him on the banks of the Nile. Now notice, previously Moses had gone into Pharaoh's courtroom to confront him, but here he has, uh, God has Moses meet Pharaoh at the Nile. Why? Why at the Nile? And why in, why in the morning? Why not 2 p.m.? Well, in the morning, part of what the Pharaoh would do, he would go out to the Nile and he would perform kind of these like ritual functions. He had this ritual bath he would do. It was kind of like a morning devotion in modern terms. Um, except for Pharaoh wasn't just a, a guy having a quiet time by the water. He was seen as the chief priest of Egypt. And so when he went out in the morning, he would be offering prayers up to the god of the Nile to ensure that the water would rise the way it needed to be. Um, I'm trying to think of something that, is, this is not a good correlation, but something to get our mind around what's happening here. It's not just Pharaoh going out in private. It would, it would be like if the President of the United States every morning got up and he personally put the American flag at the flagpole. Like this was a big public ritual function. Pharaoh wasn't by himself here. And so this is what Moses is to go into and interrupt. And look at again in verse 17 when he says, This is what the Lord says, By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed into blood. Now for a society entirely dependent on the Nile River like this, this would have been utterly disruptive and devastating. Absolutely. It would have ground everything in Egypt to a halt. Not only that, it would have been horrifying, right? (laughs) It would be absolutely horrifying. It would have seemed, in a sense, that the Nile itself, or Hopi, the god of the Nile, had been killed. And his blood was flowing because he had been killed by the Lord. And now suddenly this blood is everywhere. As it says in verse 19, there will be blood everywhere, even on their idols of wood and stone. But this wasn't just God doing something scary. If he wanted to do something scary, he could have done anything. This was partly God revealing something. Because there already was blood everywhere in Egypt. The blood of the Israelites was baked into every brick. The blood of the Israelites was part of every piece of wealth, tainting every part of what Egypt was. And this first plague wasn't just a symbolic killing of this false god. It was a revealing of the death that undergirded and underwrote Egypt in its power. It was God bringing this all to light. 
Now this kind of pattern, that's a good example. That's the first one. This kind of pattern keeps going. If you look at the rest of the plagues, just a couple of them. The second plague, when the frogs descend upon Egypt. Well, that's directly confronting a goddess named Het. There's the goddess of childbirth, and she was pictured as a frog, as strange as that may seem to us. The plague of, on livestock, on cattle, that comes later on. That directly confronted Hathor, the goddess of the sky. She was pictured as a cow. The plague of hail. It directly uh, impacted this god named Set, who was the god of harvest and crops. The hail was destroying the crops. And the, and the ninth plague, the plague of darkness over the sky, it was attacked on Ra, the primary god of Egypt, the, the sun god. God versus the gods. That's what's going on in the plagues. It's not just God doing some fancy tricks. It's Him declaring war on these false gods. For everyone to see. It's Him exposing their false power. Exposing the false power of the false gods. And exposing, in exposing those gods, He's exposing the false claims of Egypt as a whole. Egypt had enslaved His people, the Israelites. And they had justified it. Saying our gods allow us to do this. Our gods are cool with it. In fact, Pharaoh is a deity himself. He, whatever he says goes. What God is saying here in the plagues is no. No. The religion that these gods represented was the foundation of, of an oppressive kingdom. And so the judgment that falls upon the false gods also includes and impacts those who have worshipped and benefited from those gods. So that's an overview there. Of the plagues. And that's my first section, the false gods. And here's my second section, the true God. Because the plagues weren't just designed to expose and embarrass the false gods. They were to do the greater job of revealing the power of the one true God. Specifically, they were, make to, they were making the point that this God, the God of the Hebrews, was the Lord. Not Pharaoh, not Ra, not Het, not Hopi. Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, He's the true God. And that's why I think that the release of the Israelites couldn't have come easily. Because it wasn't just about freeing them. If God had wanted to just free them, He could have done that. But the plagues were about showing who God is, a demonstration of His power that required a dramatic stage. Something so dramatic that it was going to be handed down through the centuries. Something so dramatic and revealing about Him that it set the tone for everything after it in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So dramatic that we're talking about it here, 3,400 years later. So God says specifically all of this in the middle of the plagues. Look at chapter 9. It's printed for you in, in the bulletin. He has Moses confront Pharaoh in the morning. And look at verse 13. Confront Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says, Let my people go, so they may worship me. Or this time, I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people, so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now, I could have stretched out my hand and struck you, and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the face of the earth. But I've raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. The remembering of these plagues throughout history, and even this morning, serves as a reminder, in part to all who would seek to build a kingdom like Egypt, that this is what God does to oppression. 
He drags it into the light. He exposes it. And he overcomes it. He exposes it. He wars against it. He judges it. And that's one of the reasons this has been recorded for us in Scripture and handed down. But, lest we miss the point, the reminder for us is not that God is just super tough. We aren't supposed to read this and think, well, man, look what he did to Egypt. What's he going to do to me? And we'll actually talk a little bit more about that when we come back to Exodus after Easter um, in our next sermon. We're meant to read this passage and to read about this demonstration of God versus the gods and His power. We're meant to read this and know that the God who takes up the cause of the downtrodden and the humble is our God. That this God who will not allow the false power of Egypt to continue to reign over His people is our God that will not allow the false gods who claim uh, our, or try to claim our allegiance to win. The false gods that seem to hold us bound will be judged as well, and their bonds broken as well. It's also meant to teach us to turn from the false gods of this world and their false promises, to be aware of the tendency of our hearts in this fallen and sinful world to try and put something other than God at the center of who we are. The false gods of Egypt were those who were seen to only give power and blessing to Pharaoh and those who fell in line with him. They were seen to empower him in all his slave making and his murder. And Pharaoh could do it too because they were slaves after all. Of course, he can treat the Hebrews that way. They don't matter. After all, he was the son of the gods. But no more. No more. Because the Lord is here and he is God and this can go on no longer. Now, when we get to the New Testament, to flash, uh, to, you know, flash forward here, we see the same kind of emphasis continue. Think about Jesus arriving on the scene. What's one of the main things we see Jesus doing in his time on earth? He casts out demons, right? It's something that's never seen in the Old Testament. It's not a common thing. Jesus arrives on the scene, and all of a sudden, he's casting unclean spirits or, or demons out of people. It's this um, wild thing. What's going on there? Jesus is showing up on the scene and he is declaring war. Not just on the false gods of Egypt or a kingdom. He's declaring war on the very real power of Satan. In fact, when Jesus talks about it, he talks about it as him going into a strong man's house and binding him so he can plunder the house. The idea is that Satan holds this world and the way this world works and us even in his grasp. And what Jesus is coming to do is to bind that power so that He can free us. Jesus is arriving on the scene declaring war against Satan. Satan, who the Scriptures even call the God of this world uh, in 1 John, is against God's purposes. And in a sense, He holds the world bound under the rule of sin. Jesus arrives here performing not just exorcisms, but what Scripture calls signs, which is the same thing the plagues are called here, signs. Not the same type as the plagues, though. Because think about it. Most of the signs that Jesus performs, they're not signs of judgment, right? They're works of healing. And show God's intentions for His people. Of course, Moses pronounces, uh, he does signs, and he pronounces words of judgment, and there's mercy mixed in. It's there. Mercy for the Hebrews. But Jesus comes with an open door for even those who are bound in Egypt. <laughs> Jesus comes with an open door for those who have worked wickedness to lay down their arms. 
and to come to Him to be cleansed, forgiven, and set free themselves. A way for us, in the words of Galatians 1, to be rescued from, quote, this present evil age. Now make no mistake, that doesn't mean that Jesus is unconcerned with injustice, not at all. He promises that all things will be made new and that all that is wrong will be made right. And that means for those who do not come to Him by faith, that means judgment. It does. But in Jesus, the grace of God abounds in a clearer word than it does in Moses. The grace of God abounds in a way that creates a new kingdom. And that's what the church is to be. The church is to be a place, the kingdom of God, where the false gods of this world can be exposed. Where they have been exposed. And where the true God is clearly seen. Where we come to find this God as our all. In a place where the idols that work in our hearts and in our world can be called out, exposed, and defeated by His grace as well. Which brings me to my last section, the ongoing exodus. The ongoing exodus. Friends, our world is bound under the mastery of false gods. There's really no other way to say it. It might be hard to see because we inhabit a world where we're just immersed in it. It's like fish swimming in water. We swim in a world that (laughs) is calling out uh, at us, uh, these false gods. And for us in our world, it might not seem so obvious. Because we don't call necessarily call these gods gods. We don't necessarily bow down to them in worship or anything like that. Even, even though as an aside, I think sometimes we miss how the symbols at work in this world um, play on our heart uh, and can even be idols. Um, like the Statue of Liberty. I love the Statue of Liberty. You know it wasn't just drawn up by some artist in France. Um, it's actually an ancient Roman goddess, Libertas, the goddess of liberty or freedom. Um, just right there in, in the harbor. Anyway, that's an aside. But for us, most of our idols, most of the things that actually claim our hearts, we wouldn't say they're deities. We wouldn't say they're gods. But for us, our idols, they're the things we turn to to find our security, to find our strength. And just because they're less obvious doesn't mean they're less powerful. Just because they're less obvious doesn't mean they're less powerful in their hold on our hearts. They're what we turn to for comfort. Things that if they're challenged, we immediately grow defensive about. Things that if they're removed, it feels like they would absolutely destroy us. What are some of those idols? Well, I think uh, our ideas of what a family should be or could be can be an idol. Kids are a blessing from the Lord, but not everybody's going to be a parent. Marriage is an incredibly beautiful thing when it's done according to God's gracious way, but not everyone's going to be happily married or married at all. When we picture in our mind, the only way that we can be happy is if I have this spouse and these two and a half kids and a white picket fence, this image of what an adult that's fully formed and mature should be, what we've done is we've created an idol that we're looking toward for significance. That when we don't need it, we tear ourselves down because we somehow haven't done what we should. And when we put our identity in that, it wreaks havoc on us. And what happens is we tend to ask those family members that we do have to carry more weight than they should. Um, You know, how many... 
How many tragic stories of children do we know where the, the, the parents try to live vicariously through the kids and destroy the actual relationship there? What's happened is the kid becomes an idol who can't carry the weight of that. So our idea of, of what we should be or a family can become an idol. Our ideas of success. We live in a world that, you know, in, in, in folks a little bit younger than me, they're into what's called hustle culture now. Everybody's supposed to have two or three jobs, and you're supposed to be working to build your wealth, and maybe you can retire at 50 years old, and you can do all this thing. Work, 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 work. It's literally a song. Work, 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 work. But that idea of success will always remain elusive because the amount of money will never be enough. The amount of money, you can always lose your job. But when we have that at the center of who we are, it eats our heart away. And we might not even realize it's going on. There's other ones. Pleasure is a false god. Chasing after pleasure. Uh, even good things. Family's a good thing, right? Paying the bills is a good thing. <laughs> Those can become false gods. Things like patriotism can become false gods. I'm proud to be American. I don't want to live anywhere else in the world. It's true. But when we ask something like that to carry the absolute weight of who we are, to the point that if we look down on others for not being the same background or same nationality as us or for whatever um, reasons, that can become an idol that in a sense takes the place of God at the center of who we are. All of our idols, whether they're bad things or whether they're good things that we've put too much hope in, they poison us. They tear us down. They bleed us dry. They cannot come through on what they promise. But how can we be free? How can we be free? It won't be enough for us to see it. Just to see it happen. Because the Israelites surely knew about the false gods in Egypt, right? (laughs) They surely knew they were there. They felt it on their shoulders every day. Our false gods have to not only be exposed but defeated. Defeated so we can reorient our life and realign our desires. And the good news, guys, isn't that I have ten easy steps for you to defeat your idols this morning. The good news is that right here this morning, we are meeting with the God who defeats all of our enemies for us. Who turns us from the false promises of false gods and turns us to Himself. I want you to think about this. What does our God do? The false gods of this world will always ask for more. We'll never come through on on their promises. But what does our God do? He brings us to Himself. Not to judge, not with condemnation, but with love. He forgives us of our sins. He doesn't tell us, you need to jump this high, and if you don't get out of my sight, He forgives us. He knows we can't jump at all. He descends to us. What does He do in the sacraments? He washes us in baptism. What does He do at this table? He feeds us. This is what our God does. What does He do when we pray? He hears our voices. What does He do through Scripture? He speaks to us by His Word. There is no other God in this world that offers a welcome and a home like that. No other religion in this world has a God that descends that far to give grace and love to His people. And in light of such a profound love, we must not turn away to lesser gods. So as our lesser gods, as the false gods we put our hope in are exposed, and they will be, we have to let go of self-protectiveness and defensiveness. 
We have to turn to Jesus who has shown us the true God. Not in fear, but in confidence. Because he, is, he has freed us and He is freeing us so that we may call on no other name. No other name. Part of what's going on in worship this morning is that God is in this room in the process of what we're doing and singing these songs and praying these prayers and hearing His Word, He is turning us from our idols. Because I know this looks like an ordinary room because it is. But what's going on is God has called us together under the echo of His promise in our ears and in our hearts. And in worship, He is forming us. He is forming us to be people that turn to Him, that become like Him. He's forming us to be people who turn time and time again to the true God. Not a God who demands and uses us, but a God who rescues and brings us to Himself in love. And as He does this, as He does this right here in Dunn, North Carolina, I think we start to find that another way of life is possible. We're not many. Look around, you can count the heads. We're not many. We have gifts. We have lots of weaknesses, or I do at least. And sometimes it feels like we can do so very little because we live in a world surrounded by false gods. But as we worship, as we're taught by God, as we're washed by Him and forgiven, fed by Him and joined to Him and one another, we find that His kingdom, which does not rule by the, the, the laws of Pharaoh, the false gods who only use, we find that right here His kingdom is enacted in our midst. We're freed from the false gods that only demand more and more and freed to the God who gives and gives. That's the good news of the gospel this morning. That in Christ, all obstacles between us being able to turn to the true God and find refuge and strength are removed. That we can come to Him and He can bear the weight of our identity. He can hold the center. He can reorient our lives so that those good things that we put too much hope in can be reoriented. Where we can have a healthy love of family. Where we can be uh, healthy uh, and proud of our country. or All of these things that can be reoriented. And He holds the center. And He holds us. Let's pray. Father, thank You that You call us into the, Your kingdom, that You rescue us. That You as King, You declare war on all that holds us bound, Lord. That You are set to free us. And not have us consumed in judgment in the process. That in Christ you have passed true judgment on our sin in a way that removes it from us. And all that is left for us is the kingdom of your grace where you, the true God who loves us, reigns. Place that at the center of who we are. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.